Welcome back to Will Be Spoilers, 100 films, 100 podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And we are back with number 15 on AFI's top 100 list of films. That's 1968's 2001, A Space Odyssey. 2001, A Space Odyssey. Ethan, have you ever seen this film before? Oh, yes. I have not. This was my first time seeing it. So you were in for a trip. I was in for space and time. The ultimate trip, as the film's tagline later came to be. (laughs) But we'll talk more about that later. First, I think we should get a plot synopsis. Okay, so 2001 A Space Odyssey begins in Africa, millions of years in the past. There, a group of apes are seemingly visited by a giant alien monolith. The monolith appears to influence them into using bones as weapons, and they begin to drive out other groups of apes in order to access water. In the year 2001, Dr. Haywood Floyd travels to an outpost on the moon where he is to investigate a discovery, another giant alien monolith. Floyd and several other astronauts visit the monolith and eventually it emits a high-powered radio signal. Later, the Discovery 1 spacecraft is bound for Jupiter carrying doctors David Bowman and Frank Poole, as well as several other scientists and a highly advanced computer called HAL 9000. Only Frank and Dave remain awake. The other scientists are put into hibernation. During the trip, HAL reports the failure of an antenna device. The scientists investigate it but find that there is no problem. HAL insists that they let the device fail in order to diagnose it. Mission control suggests to the men that HAL is definitely mistaken, but again, HAL insists that it is human error, not computer error. Dave and Frank inside an EVA pod, uh, which is a little spaceshipy thing, where they think HAL cannot hear them, decide that if HAL is wrong, they will disconnect him. HAL reads their lips, however, and attacks Frank with his EVA pod while he spacewalks to fix the antenna. As Dave tries to save Frank, HAL turns off the life support for the hibernating scientists, killing them. After Dave retrieves Frank's body, HAL refuses to let him back into the spacecraft, forcing Dave to enter the airlock manually. Once inside, he goes to HAL's processor core and begins shutting him down. After killing Hal, Dave is shown a message from Mission Control, learning that his mission is to investigate the recipient of the radio signal coming from the monolith on Jupiter. Once above Jupiter, Dave explores in an EVA pod and sees another floating monolith. He is sucked into a colorful vortex and appears to traverse space and time. He awakens in a large neoclassical-style bedroom where he sees himself as an older man and then as an even older man. As he lies in bed, very old, the monolith appears at the foot of the bed. He reaches out to touch it and is transformed into a fetus encased in light. He floats near the earth and observes it. As a star child. As a star child. Are they EVA pods? Because I thought EVA was just the term for spacewalking. Oh, I don't know. I just always call it an EVA pod. <laughs> I think what they're doing is going EVA, and those pods are just little spacecraft. But I could be wrong. I don't really know. What I do yeah, know, I though, know. is that <laughs> it's probably best if we tackle each of these sections one at a time because yeah. they increase in complexity as they go. Yes. So a little order for our podcast that we don't typically impose. But 
starting with The Dawn of Man. The Dawn of Man. You said you've seen this before? Yes. I knew of certain aspects of this film through cultural yeah. osmosis, right? The whole right. raison d'etre of this podcast is that we know things about these films we have not seen. Mm-hmm. And I knew about the bone being thrown. And I knew about the ancient humans, right? The apes. Yes. That were doing something. To what extent, I didn't know. Right. This might have been one of my favorite parts of the film, actually. Really? Despite the fact that I am always made uncomfortable by humans in ape suits. Yeah. <laughs> and I had to do a little little digging back in my memories as to why. I think it was like the 90s, the Time Machine film. Oh. I think that might have done it. I think I saw it. Scarred you for young. life? Yeah. Well, maybe not scarred for life, but enough to make me uneasy <laughs> around yeah. humans in ape suits. But maybe it's just the way that they like imitate apes and there's something. They pretend to be. There's something so viscerally like regressive about that where it's like, oh no, humans are devolving before my eyes. I don't know. Maybe there's some like existential ennui about that or something. I, I think that's what it is. It's existential ennui. But the leader ape human name is Moonwatcher. I think it's just the Moonwatcher. best name. Yes. I thought the way that the monolith just shows up and how they see it in both fear and awe and then initially later than curiosity. But that was really well done. And I could just, just see like, just man, these are painstaking one. scenes that are probably filmed to why, an excess as we I know Kubrick was probably doing most likely with thing. each of these scenes. And I just thought it was really well done. And I thought the idea okay. of that bone, man's introduction to tools, but also war. And it's a bone of another dead ape, probably. And so it's like man's Thanatos at the same time, right? He's using death. He's harnessing the power of death to create more death. And it's like, okay, we, I, I see us in this, you know? Right. Yes. Be, because I mean that is right. That what we see as the dawn of man is is weapon. Right. Is the creation of a weapon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm with you. Yeah. It, it it doesn't go better for us. I mean, I guess it goes better for us, but it, I guess it's all downhill from there, right? <laughs> so I read several articles on this film after viewing it because naturally I was pretty confused. And I don't think I'm less confused that much, but <laughs> one thing that a Medium article talked about was apparently Kubrick in several interviews, this guy kind of put them all together and, and made like an accounting of mm -hmm. the story of this film. And in part one, he's saying, look, this is man using tools in general, not just weapons, just tools in mm -hmm. general. And that involves conflict. Like man's evolution cannot be done without conflict. And so we're supposed to see that, like, it's a tumultuous road toward perfectibility, not that perfectibility can ever be achieved. And sure. I thought that was, you know, it's interesting, right? It does give a bit of a theodicy for man's evolution, but I, I, did, I did like the sequence, right? I thought it was really well done. I thought it yeah. was actually genuinely disturbing seeing the monolith, but also then seeing the war that comes out of it. Yeah, definitely. And then we get thrown up into space with the bone. And eventually we see Space Station 5, the big orbiting like space hotel restaurant place. Mm -hmm. And I saw a note on IMDb, and I've put less and less stock in IMDb as a <laughs> like trivia reporting thing. But this one seemed innocuous enough that I could believe it. That they had lost the model for Space Station 5 after filming. 
Uh-huh. And it's apparently like seven feet across, so it's a pretty big thing. Yeah, it's not easy to lose. And they eventually found it like in the English countryside, deserted and, you know, derelict. And a few wow. days after discovery, several like vandals just like destroyed it. And you think, oh, that's that's what Dawn of Man is telling us, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that. Where we've gone very far, haven't we? Oh yeah, so far that you find a piece of art in the countryside, and your first thought is, "Let's destroy this." Let's destroy it. I like to think they used bones of animals that they found around. Right to smash it. Yes. <laughs> we should also mention the advances in filming that was done in Dawn of Man specifically. Yeah. With the, it's not really a desert i mean i guess i guess they did go out to a desert to get these these shots right yeah and they used recorded sounds of actual animals it was used for a different film and they repurposed it they just like took advantage of that resource Mm -hmm. but they did that shot where you've got what is it a leopard sitting on a dead zebra which is actually a painted horse horse yeah but they used a lot of superimposition shots and did stuff that was pretty groundbreaking for the time to capture all those things so it wasn't just like a bunch of people in ape costumes on a soundstage right they were using pretty sophisticated technology to make it appear like they're there in the desert oh i didn't know that yeah i mean i'm sure they were on a soundstage somewhere but it wasn't like it wasn't like the grapes of wrath scene that we talked about where they're walking (laughs) through that fog to his house and they're like man you were just on a like mgm studio lot very obviously on the yeah but they were using those shots in the background to make it appear real and i think that's actually why you see the leopard's eyes light up yes yeah that's because of uh, a flaw in in the process they were using but kubrick liked it so they're like all right we'll keep it and it it looks terrifying yeah, I mean, that's why I think this is my favorite section, despite my uncomfortability with the uncanny apes, but right. it really sets the stage for something incredible. And I think, well, whether or not we get that delivered is another thing. Mm-hmm. Should we move on to <laughs> the second part, section? Yeah, part one. If if Donna Man is the introduction, then part one would be Dr. What is, it? is his first name Haywood? Haywood? I think so. That's what the internet told me. Yeah, what's his last name? I feel, Floyd. I was like, okay, Haywood Floyd. It seems like it should be Floyd Haywood, right? Floyd because Haywood, right? Floyd seems like a first name, and Haywood seems like a last name. But it's the future. <laughs> yeah. So he goes to the space hotel and then has a conversation with some Russians about the and potential. And his daughter. His daughter's not there. No, not there, but they okay. have space phone. About his, yeah, about his daughter. And, well, and he, and he space phones his daughter. Oh, well, it's actually Stanley Kubrick's daughter that he space phones. Oh, really? Yep, that's accurate. He used his daughter for that. And now, of course, that space phone scene is so wild because it, he has to get into a space phone booth. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can space phone w- with something in our pocket. Right. So in a lot of ways, the future that we see is on the same rails we're at. Yeah, But I was talking to my wife about this last night. It's like, this is basically a way to envision the future. And we'll get into this with our three questions. But I mean, this film was more documentary at its inception than it ended up being. Mm -hmm. And this future would have been right 
if for some reason humanity didn't fall prey to its baser like capitalistic instincts and we actually invested in space travel and technological advancement as opposed to consumer advancement Mm -hmm. so that the fact that we can space phone each other on these little devices in our hands (laughs) is really telling of a consumer market as opposed to our our giant space hotel right that's i think that's really interesting that we i mean we could be in space hotels if not for capitalism Put that on the back of the box. <laughs> <laughs> I I also tended to like this sequence because again I didn't oh, know no, I didn't you, did I? really the plot of the film. I knew like open the pod bay doors. How I know that there's a crazy robot. So I thought that when we're talking about this potential outbreak at Clavius, I'm thinking, oh, it's the robots taking over. And right. I don't remember the protagonist being this old, but I guess that's the case. And we're just going to have to see where this comes out. So I thought this was like building the mystery with yeah. those Russian doctor scientists talking about an outbreak at Clavius. But of course it's a red herring. Yeah. Well, red herring. <laughs> sure. It's a red herring because it's they, well, red herring means it's like it had nothing to do with it. Right. But this is an engineered plot to say, yeah. don't let anyone know about this monolith we've dug up on the moon. And then we have all those scientists with Haywood go down and take the picture in front of it. Radio transmission happens. But before that, you know, they go down there. And the article I was reading argued that they are not seeing it with curiosity like the apes were. Yeah. But at the same time, they're still doing a lot of the similar things. Like Haywood goes up and touches it. It's almost like no matter how far advanced we become, we still we still reach out and touch things, right? We still have the same sort of base curiosity about things. Yeah. And and it, and it is an interesting parallel, right? Because it's it's kind of a boring scene, honestly. Mm-hmm. And and that I think is one of the strangest things about this film is that aside from that, you know, from a few moments, particularly the introduction, um, it's it's kind of a boring movie. Oh, it's an exceptionally boring movie, and that's by design. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It's very obviously by design. Um. And so this scene is a is such a strange scene because it's or I guess this sequence, right? This whole part one, it's boring. It's boring and it's meant to show the monotony of space travel. Yes. But then also when they see this exceptional event, right, the black monolith, they don't really view it in a way that someone like you or I would in just like holy shit moment. They're mm-hmm. demure, they are scientists that are are maybe jaded against exceptional objects and events and i think that's intentional right to show that like we've become divested with awe yes yes absolutely right uh nothing in this uh sequence is in any way uh anything other than mundane for for every character Mm -hmm. including this vast alien thing yeah. Uh, e- even the the sort of way they take that photo is is sort of like uh you know you're the, it's like at a ribbon cutting or something for some company. You know what I mean? It's it's so mundane. It is, and that's such a powerful idea. One, first, it's bad operational security if you're trying to do a cover up to take a picture in front of a black monolith. Fair. <laughs> but when they do, it is very much like you can just imagine guys in suits. These are just the suits of the future. They're space suits. Yeah. And they're just standing in front of it, just like, yep, alien object. 
alien object. Let's get our little photo and make sure you get enough of them. Get my good side. <laughs> Each of these parts that we've gone through so far have had harsh cuts at their conclusions. Yeah. Or maybe the, the Dawn of Man one, the cut is actually when you see the moon or the, is it the sun creep over the monolith? And uh, yeah. It makes a harsh cut there, which is, you know, startling kind of keep you like, whoa. And then mm. as that radio transmission, that sound goes through, yeah. which I didn't know is radio transmission until much later, obviously. Yeah. yeah. They do a harsh cut into the Jupiter mission. Yes. So in the Jupiter mission, this I feel like is the film that people know yeah. through osmosis, mm. right? It is how it is the crazy robot trying to take over this the spaceship. Mm-hmm. And it's such a small part of the film. It is. It's very little, actually. It's and and again, it's another sequence where it is. So a lot of it is kind of painfully boring, um, which which I think is is just further underscoring this whole idea that like space travel is not something that's exciting anymore, right? It's it it, it is mundane. It's boring. It's it's not any. It's nothing to sneeze at, right? Like these guys their time on the space station is spent looking at their ipads basically like they're you know they eat breakfast they run around the thing they go to bed yeah (laughs) and the the reality of two guys sitting together at a table not talking looking at two separate ipads at the same thing that is so real and scary (laughs) i know you're mentioning the character Frank running around, you know, doing his daily like exercise, right? He's yes. running and like punching the air. Originally, that was like a 10 minute scene. Oh my God. Of him I, doing that. I think it it's all, it almost would be better with him doing that for 10 minutes. Oh, people uh, hated it. That's why it got cut down. Cause I think the original premiere of the film was 160 minutes or 161 oh minutes. And a lot of it was just hammering home more of the monotony. And mundanity of space travel yeah and i mean this is this is the thing most of this movie is you watching objects move either towards one another or away from one another that's probably half this movie uh and sometimes it's beautiful sometimes it's tedious and awful but that's re- it's the movie of watching things move <laughs> in a lot of ways one, one would argue that every movie is a movie of well, watching I mean, things move right yes but you know this one it's so many things it's like two objects moving towards or away from each other and you just watch them do that very slowly uh for sometimes several minutes yeah i agree with that and there are some scenes that come to mind of just like okay this is happening still happening <laughs> and and there's again on top of it not only is this movie like sometimes painfully boring sometimes full of these weird moving sequences where you're like okay is we're going to watch 10 more minutes of this um but it's also interspersed with like very harsh and unpleasant sounds mm-hmm. right you talk about these jump cu- or not jump cuts the but the hard cuts right and the uh the radio signal transmission, which is just a loud, harsh tone. Yeah, it's supposed to hurt you like it's hurting everyone else's ears. Yeah, and it do- and it does if you've got the volume up loud, and you know you've got these extended scenes in the in the uh, the Hal portion where it's just this. <sighs> <laughs> and 
for like 15 minutes. Yeah, over it's the entire like EVA sequences, which apparently is Stanley Kubrick's breathing, but it's just as annoying if it was anyone else's breathing. Right, it, and it, sometimes it's kind of hard to actually breathe yourself listening to that shit. Right, uh, it is a closeness that is uncomfortable, which is the whole point, right? Yeah. Just seeing that those people out in space and Ooh. having just an idea of the vastness of space through the way this film works right manipulates that i mean it starts in total blackness for like a whole what two three minutes yeah we get like an overture yeah an overture an images over overture is what i called it in my notes but yeah that kind of sets the stage really for this like pitch infinite blackness and, and you see those and, people like flying out to fix stuff you're like nope <laughs> absolutely not and of course they don't have they're not tied up to anything which is a poor decision uh and I think that that ends poorly for Frank. Um, but you're right. It's the way even even in these shots of space with these guys out there, it feels like you're in a tube. You know, the mm-hmm. way that these these scenes are framed, the vastness of space is like the closest place you could be. You know, it's both empty and very full, you know, which a lot of films have used to, to their advantage in sci fi after yeah. this. Right. Yeah, the closeness definitely. of the ship but also the vastness of space and that weird difference between the two. Yeah. I also want to mention that in reference to part one, we see a lot of advancement, right? Continuing this narrative of humanity's involvement. Mm-hmm. They have learned to walk in space. They have learned to use the toilet, right? There's a whole scene where Haywood <laughs> just like stares at the toilet <laughs> the, the very, instructions. Very long instructions. <laughs> They're eating solid food now, right? They're not like drinking beans and have a straw. Right. Instead, they are eating stuff with that weird silverware that apparently got incredibly popular after this. Is film that true? Came out. That it was popular? Yeah. I think it was like designed in 1957 and it's like still in production today. Wow. And then a lot of that's credited to the film. I'm sure. And of course, the food is just like you pick your color. Do you want a little brown? Would you like a little orange? I think I'll have a little green. But it's better than sucking it out of a straw. True. The bean straw made me feel very uncomfortable. Yeah. So <laughs> I think we can still see how man is continuing to evolve, right, in this yeah. in this section. But this is also where one of humanity's tools has gotten out of hand, right? And that would be how. So my pivotal scene is the conversation between Dave and Frank about how. Oh, yeah. If only because this is one of the few scenes that people can relate to in regard to the film. Because everyone knows about the crazy computer how. But you really can't show 15 minutes of Beyond the Infinite in an audio format. Or can you really do a lot of Donna Man stuff, right? So it's, it's going to be here. This is the most dialogue laden and probably action laden part of the film yeah which isn't and it's not fast paced let's put it like that (laughs) no no it's not so let's go ahead and take a listen and we'll be back well what do you think i'm not sure what do you think i've got a bad feeling about him you do yeah definitely don't you i don't know i think so you know, of course, though, he's right about the 9000 series having a perfect operational record. They do. Unfortunately, that sounds a little like famous last words. Yeah. Still, it was his idea to carry out the failure mode analysis, wasn't it? Mm. It should certainly indicate his integrity and self-confidence. If he were wrong, it would be the surest way of proving it. It would be if he knew he was wrong. 
Mm. But Dave, I can't put my finger on it, but I sense something strange about him. Still, I can't think of a good reason not to put back the number one unit and carry on with the failure mode analysis. No, no, I agree about that. Well, let's get on with it. Okay. Good luck, Dave. Let's say we put the unit back and it doesn't fail, huh? That would pretty well wrap it up as far as I was concerned, wouldn't it? Well, we'd be in very serious trouble. We would, wouldn't we? Mm-hmm. What the hell can we do? Well, we wouldn't have too many alternatives. I don't think we'd have any alternatives. There isn't a single aspect of ship operations that's not under his control. If he were proven to be malfunctioning, I wouldn't see how he'd have any choice but disconnection. I'm afraid I agree with you. There'd be nothing else to do. It'd be tricky. Yeah. We'd have to cut his higher brain functions without disturbing the purely automatic and regulatory systems. And we'd have to work out the transfer procedures of continuing the mission under ground-based computer control. Yeah. Well, that's far safer than allowing Hal to continue running things. You know, another thing just occurred to me. Mm. Well, as far as I know, no 9,000 computers have been disconnected. Well, no 9,000 computers ever fouled up before. That's not what I mean. Well, I'm not so sure what you think about it. So like I said, the reason I chose this is because this is really where we're seeing a lot of the film right. as a cultural context. And I, I'm left with the question, why didn't they leave the pod turned around so Hal couldn't read their lips? No, Hubris. It's hubris, right? Uh, yeah. And I think that's that's a lot of what we see going on here is that, you know, it, this is man's hubris that we can control the world or galaxy i guess right at this point that we have that we have nature under our command which of course we don't we don't even have computers under our command um uh, but i think this is such an intriguing scene because they are they are so deadpan Mm -hmm. in their discussion of of killing hal and what i think is really striking about this whole section of the movie is that these men are almost completely devoid of all emotion in this scene or in the in the in the sequence i mean right they they go about things with a robotic uh sort of mindset and the only person who's like freaking out is the robot hal's like you're not gonna kill me he doesn't like it right he's got he has more emotion in his weird robot life then the, then both of these men seem to have a, about any of this. Right. I mean, when Frank is killed immediately after intermission, right? Hal sends yes. the pod to go send him careening into space and disconnects his oxygen. And so he's dead yeah. by the time that Dave can get to him. There's no emotion, right? Dave yeah. is just, how far is he? You got a track on him? All right, I'm going after him. Goes after yeah. him, gets him. There's very little emotion, even when he collects the body. I mean, you can kind of, get some there just by just the look he has you can Mm -hmm. kind of think of this as someone on the brink of shock or something but i think it's supposed to be like you say robotic and deadpan and it's actually how when he's being killed by dave that we see the emotion from it as opposed to humanity yeah which is which is i think all part of this weird uh progression right that Mm -hmm. like we've gone from 
from animals without really reason to these like so reasonable as to be robotic you know beings uh that are that are only about just sort of precision and you know ones and zeros it feels like yeah and and an article i read summed up this section very simplistically but i think very helpfully in that man creates tool tool being how Mm -hmm. man becomes tool right because now we are secondary to hal 9000 it controls all the mission functions right then man kills tool with tool right uses a screwdriver effectively (laughs) to dismantle Hal, take out his memory and just put him basically on makes a vegetable of Hal just so we can get to jupiter yeah and that kind of shows there is no evolution again without conflict to think about that quote of kubrick's or at least a paraphrase of kubrick's from the dawn of man right because when we get to the final section, Jupiter and the infinite beyond are beyond the infinite. Yeah. We see an actual evolution before our eyes. Yeah, we do. I guess we do. Yeah. I mean, to round out <laughs> at least this, this argument that these two or three articles I had read. Yeah. were we're making. It's that Dave gets to the stargate at Jupiter. The argument is that the monolith that's in orbit around Jupiter, not actually on Jupiter. Right. Right. Functions as a gate that takes Dave to the fifth dimension where these, what were they called? The Watchers or something? Well, yeah, whatever the, yeah. This alien race who made the monolith put there puts him into a three-dimensional space within the fifth dimension for him to grow up to be observed in like a human-like zoo. Yeah, it's like a zoo. And then upon seeing that, yeah, he has, as an example of humanity, matured or evolved enough, then they've they make him upon his deathbed into the star child, right? It's very clearly his face that's in this child. Yeah, it's creepy. <laughs> Which is supposed to be the next link of human evolution, right? This merging with this this other race. Yes, but I will say that what I think is flawed about this final section, one, I mean, it, it again, as with most of the rest of this movie, it's just a lot of sort of confusing images and sound w- without a whole lot of context. Um which is both good and bad for different reasons. We can talk about that. But uh, if you don't really know what's going on, if you don't have any sort of outside context, what happens to Dave is it makes very little sense, right? But once you sort of understand that he makes his way through the you know the fifth dimension or whatever into into what is essentially a zoo, um you know, or an observation area, that whole section makes so much more sense, right? That's why he's in this weird room because it's not made by his mind or by humans or whatever. It's made by these weird extraterrestrial beings of energy, right? But trying to capture aspects of human culture. Yeah. As well. Right. Which is why it's this sort of weird, like neoclassical, but also like futuristic, Mm-hmm. We, you know what I mean? Like it, it is kind of a distillation of like, what would a human really want to live? You know what I mean? Uh, without sort of understanding human culture, really. Yeah. And to be quite transparent with my viewing of this film, I watched Donna man and part one and up to the intermission all in one sitting, took a break at intermission, like a 10 minute break, came back, 
wow, things are happening. Okay, and now they're not happening again. <laughs> Took a break at Jupiter, the title card for that. And then it probably took me 45 minutes to an hour to get through that 15-minute section of the rest of the film. You know, different things came up and I had to go deal with them. But mostly it was just like, it's a solid 15 minutes of just lights and colors. Yeah. And we are a jaded viewer in 2019. I don't want to spoil too much of our our three questions. (laughs) But it's not 1968. We have landed on the moon. We've gone to space. This is not a uncharted frontier in quite the same way that it was then. I think you're right. And I also understood nothing of it while I was watching. All the stuff I'm talking about now is really 20 plus pages of reading (laughs) to have come to these other people's ideas of it, which I largely agree with. But without that, I had no context. And I was like, what is happening? Are there three Daves here? I don't get it. Yeah. Now he's a baby in space. Okay. Yes. And the ending I still think is not his transformation is, is still not really communicated clearly. And, and I really think that like that, that final section, you know, with, with the first viewing, um, if you're not on board for what you're seeing, right. If you haven't been conditioned by the rest of the movie to, sort of uh be open to this weird light show this weird you know sort of absurd dadaist ending that that isn't clear then like yeah if you haven't been in on that it's it's just going to be sort of painful to watch because nothing really happens uh it's not you know it's it's an experimental sort of you know feeling uh section right it's about the way that the the weird unease that you feel going through all this. Um, and that's, I think, hard to get on board with if you're not already sort of primed for it. Right. And I think this is actually a perfect place to turn to our three questions. Yeah. But before we do, let's talk about Anchor. Well, okay. So our first of the three questions is, what do we owe to this film? Well, I think you can't watch any science fiction after this after this film without it, be, it being influenced by it. I mean, every everything, Star Trek, Star Wars, uh, all the weird space movies we've watched, uh, you know, Interstellar, all these things, I think, come... There's a visual language that is established here that you can't get away from. You know what I mean? Alien, all of that. Yeah, I have each of these things down on my list as well. And to make specific reference to them, with Star Wars, when they go into that space hotel, that aperture from space to dock, that's exactly duplicated in Star Wars, right? Which we're going to see in a few weeks. No, I mean, that's that's my reading of it. I I think it's impossible to look at the thing that you see in Star Wars as the entering into a spaceship's dock from the vacuum of space without seeing 2001 Space Odyssey there. Absolutely, the way the, all the, sh- the the shots of the ship moving through space, right, are are absolutely uh, mimicked in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there, there's the and and Star Wars. You know, the, we'll talk about it when we get there. But that opening sequence is is uh, sort of like 2001, but let's put a bigger ship in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it's. I think it's basically impossible to watch any sci-fi without the influence of this film. You mentioned Alien. I also have Alien written down. 
especially in part one, it feels like we're moving into alien territory, right? Yeah. Got some older scientist types. They're on a mundane mission. There are whispers of something going wrong. And then you expect something to go wrong. I expected it as someone who hadn't seen the movie yet for something to go wrong. It doesn't, right? Something else happens instead. But mm-hmm. you could definitely see where visually something like Alien with all like the sharp yellow stuff or construction and yeah. just kind of Industrial. how the atmosphere builds, it feels very alien. And I mean, Interstellar just wants to be this movie. Yes, it does. Absolutely. The uh, way the plot is, right? It's a pretty... I wouldn't say Interstellar is boring intentionally, but it's, but not, it's yeah. slower up until like this crazy finale. Yeah. And the thing about this film, right, is that it, it, all these other films, I think, are very derivative of it. Uh, it, it creates this sort of visual language, uh, you know, um, mm-hmm. and, this, and this mood and tone. But aside from, the, you know, the... Aside from movies like Interstellar that are that still tend to be fairly successful, th- this film is different than all these other films are derivative in a way that they're looking at the visual language, I think, and not the the sort of heady the philosophical things. Unless you get into movies sort of like uh, Interstellar, right? But but in general, this goes from this ranges from like Star Wars, which is essentially just fantasy in space with wizards and you know. Which about like this film, in reference to Star Wars, Michael Moorcock, a fantasy sci-fi author, said Star Wars set the genre back by many decades. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I and I think that's that's a fair assessment, right? Like this is a philosophical film about unease and and mood and you know and like deep, you know, deep, deep, deep questions about humanity and what what our place in the universe is right and then you have like star wars with a with a giant talking dog (laughs) right so they very much miss the point of a film like this though they take some lessons from it i think a film that we've seen recently that actually takes the main idea from this film is stalker yeah stalker is a lot this this film and stalker are are very similar right they're both <laughs> they're both kind of boring well both intentionally boring right both yeah. have very long shot lengths intentionally to try to show you the boringness of something incredible black yeah. monolith is treated with absolute mundanity so is like the room and then yeah. both have these philosophical revelations that are really tied up and mired in boringness yeah <laughs> i also think that this film is a major data point in our mistrust of ai yeah yeah <laughs> and we didn't really hit this that hard but hal is also growing up right he's supposed to be like nine in the film yeah i think so i think he's supposed to be much younger in the book but in any case he you know he he rebels in a way but also you know, has assumed his own superiority and it's his hubris that gets him killed, but also everyone else. And it's just, even our perfect machines are, are flawed humans. Yeah. And we get this like weird concentric circles of hubris, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I like that idea that, yeah, I think we, after this film, it becomes very hard to trust a computer. (laughs) So then our second question is, does this film hold up? Well, 
this is a kind of a tough question to answer because this film is is fucking boring like <laughs> a, a lot of it is fucking boring um and it's it's hard it's some of it is really hard to watch and as you pointed out right like you can't simply just put people in space in 2019 and be like look upon my work see mighty uh and despair right because we've one been there we've been to the moon right uh and you know it's that's just not a spectacle in the same way it used to be right right i mean technologically speaking we have seen so much more of space as a viewer culture just through screens and photos and imaging yeah and also other representations of space through other films that this isn't going to be nearly as groundbreaking as it would have been for an audience in 68 who also wasn't that into it when it first came out yeah (laughs) and that's what i mentioned way at the top of the episode about the ultimate trip being the subtitle to the film was after the execs wised up and saw that people were going there to get high and watch the end of this film that maybe they should play into that and that's how it like was saved as a box office failure effectively yeah and and i will tell you that you know um this film is better uh, with substances <laughs> i'll have to believe you on that because i watched this stone sober and it's, that's maybe it, why it was so hard to get through the end but i mean i wanted to see it as kubrick intended and it was difficult i admit it's difficult it's kind of miserable to watch stone sober and and this is definitely a film that the more you learn about it and the more you watch it you know this is probably my fourth viewing in my life third or fourth um it, it when you know what's kind of going on it is a more interesting experience because then you're not you're less focused on like what what is at what is the plot of this turd um and instead it, you you just kind of let the experience wash over you which that is a much better way to watch it but that again assumes that you're going to sit through this you know 17 hour spaceship ballet three times (laughs) yeah and i think there's a couple things that from my reading would be helpful here to think about is people think of this film as an essay on time yeah right a period piece about a period that had yet to happen that's an article in the new yorker which is so interesting because this is documentary in a way because we had this whole roadshow thing attached to it or initially it was going to be this big thing Arthur C. Mm. Clarke, the writer of the short story it's based on, and then later the novel right. that was supposed to come out before but didn't, so people thought it was a novelization when it's actually its own right. separate work that was you know, largely expanded. He did so much voiceover for this film. Oh, yeah, and then there's no voiceover at all in the there's final There's none thing. of it. That's why he left <laughs> at intermission, which is a weird time to leave that film. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> was very upset, but this was during the great debut of it. So the 161 minute one as opposed to the much, well, not much shorter, but significantly shorter, cut out some of the stuff. But they, this film was made without knowing what the final revelation would be. Like they knew it was going to be this boring space trip for most of it and then have something stunning at the end, but they couldn't settle on what they wanted to do for budgetary reasons, for artistic reasons, for this collaboration and so, you know, that always puts up a really big red flag for me when you think of, well, you had this idea, but you didn't know how you're going to wrap it up. Right. And it feels like the whole Lost problem, right? The TV show Lost. Yeah. 
you promise all this stuff but don't really know where you're going to end up and that's that's jj abrams biggest problem too right like that's he is a director that has not gone away right he starts with these great mysteries but never knows how to fix them and end them and that's a lot of artistry in general right and that's why an editor creative editor is so important yeah to jump into the world of gaming right hideo kojima's death stranding yeah (laughs) being this crazy monstrosity in its own right because no one told him no right and And aren't there scenes of it's just him like drinking monster for scenes and scenes oh yeah yeah i mean it's it's there's a tradition of of artists going overboard because no one is willing to tell them you you shouldn't do this right exactly and so i think when we try to answer this question does it hold up this film is on lists of greatest films of all time i mean it's number 15 on our afi here yeah. but it's also on lists of the most boring film yeah and there's something interesting about that and so i think a lot of the viewing doesn't hold up but it didn't hold up then but it also knew it wasn't trying to be interesting at the time so it's right it's not going to hold up for a modern viewer who is used to the marvel films yeah and 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 this film is is kind of antagonistic right like it is it is kind of doing that to the viewer so you're right there's no way it can stand up against these marvel films which are all spectacle and all plot right and this is this is a spectacle of a of a different kind right this is spectacle when we when it's dated right Mm -hmm. with with almost no plot at all because the plot is kind of inconsequential to the spectacle to the to the sort of deep philosophical symbolism that runs throughout this thing right like this it yeah it's it's not the same kind of movie it's and so like you said no it didn't go over well then and it's not going to go over well now right i mean (laughs) it's full of philosophy which people are allergic to in a modern audience but on top of that it was also really documenting space travel again a period piece that had yet to happen but with that it's also Kubrick imagining the future and creating that future because the company he's he's got on board, like Maytag and other things like that, we're the taste makers for decades. Right. And so our future in a lot of ways didn't look so dissimilar to that, at least as it leading up to it. I mean, 2019 or 2001, way different looking than the actual film 2001. Right. But, you know, the next decades were still kind of molded by the visual aesthetic of this film in that way. Yeah. So our final question then, do we care about this film? Uh, you know, despite the fact that it's painfully boring um, and really is kind of a mess in, in many ways, I, I think so. If only for its visual language and the kind of like space spectacle that it that it sets up for everybody else. And, and it is, I mean, if you are going to watch it with all this stuff in mind, it, it, it is fascinating. But it's not Star Wars. No, I mean, it's fascinating. It's clearly an achievement. We've been speaking for 45 minutes about it. Yeah. If we didn't care about it, this episode would have been over in 20 minutes, right? Right. So this is something that warrants your attention. It warrants your critical attention, right? You're not going to get just a basic surface-level spectacle view of this and, and find it important. But I think for all the reasons we've discussed, it's something we have to care about. Yeah, I think so. So that will finally do it for us on this episode. We will be back next week with our Patreon exclusive for patrons of the arts only yes. bonus episode. Yes. That is Pandorum. 
Oh, it's bonus. Very different space movie. Oh, I think so. It's, I think it's going to be very different. I just wanted to just get it in there somehow, shoehorn it in, and we just watched the space movie. So here it comes. So hopefully this one will be an interesting space movie, <laughs> not a boring one. Well, I mean, we'll see. Oh, great. Then that's a glowing endorsement. <laughs> we also have another rundown. I know. we've We've got one coming up. And then we'll be back on the AFI Top 100 with number 14. That's 1960s Psycho. Psycho. But until then, I've been Matt Mazzell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. Open the spoiler bay door, Hal. Open the spoiler bay door, Hal. There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight. And that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers. Spoilers.